Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today we're going to discuss the concept of building wealth and how becoming a millionaire over time is now more of a necessity than a pipe dream, albeit one that is within reach with careful planning. I'm joined by Susanna Snyder, U.S. News Senior Editor for Personal Finance. Susanna, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Our guest this week is Chris Hogan. Chris is a best-selling author, personal finance expert, host of The Chris Hogan Show through the Dave Ramsey Network, and a leading voice on retirement, investing, and building wealth. His new book, Everyday Millionaires, How Ordinary People Build Extraordinary Wealth and How You Can Too, is out now. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I understand, Chris, you're right at the beginning of a book tour for Everyday Millionaires. How's that shaping up? Oh, it's been fantastic. Uh, we have um, hit New York for a couple days into Chicago, and now we're beginning the Texas run before we start to head west. So before we get down into the nitty-gritty of building wealth, I, I want to talk about your background a little bit. How did you get into the financial advice world, and what inspired you, you know, years later to write Everyday Millionaires? Well, for me, you know, I started off in the uh, banking industry right out of graduate school. So uh, really there began to kind of learn uh, this whole, um, gosh, platform about money. Uh, moved from the consumer finance industry into mainstream banking and then into wealth management. Um, and so it was a steady progression, I, I guess. You know, I have uh, been the recipient of some incredible advice throughout my life and, and people helping me along the way. So the desire to be able to teach and coach people has always been something that has been a part of me. And so helping people to understand money better, understanding what steps to take, uh, I feel like is uh, something that I, I am destined to do. Um, I enjoy seeing the light bulb go off for people. I love when they start to see things differently and now can start to take some steps to make make themselves better. That's wonderful. It sounds like you've got a background that sets you up well to talk about personal finance. Um, so something that came to my mind when I was reading the book is what does being a millionaire really mean today? So is it still enough to feel wealthy, to retire? Is it what it was for our parents or our grandparents? You know, what does it mean for people reading this book? Well, I think looking at it, you know, Susanna, you see this and you can start to think of people need milestones. Um, I think we, we as humans, we like to keep score, right? That's why we have these sports games and everything else. We keep score. And I think a million dollars, while it might not be what it was 15 or 20 years ago, I think looking at the whole concept of the book and the process that I'm talking about of getting yourself out of debt so you're not having payments, you're not sending your money anywhere. And now having that money there growing with time and compound interest, that life can look like whatever you want it to look like. If you don't owe anybody anything and you've got a good sized amount of money put away that's growing. So I want more people empowered to make decisions for themselves, not necessarily chained to an obligation of debt and regret later in life. Sure. So it sounds like it's a goal or a benchmark that you're kind of moving toward. It is definitely a goal. 89% uh, of the people that we studied in my book, we talked to over 10,000 millionaires. 89% uh, of them have a net worth between $1 and $5 million. So these are people that have been working over time and understand the value of gaining interest. Oh, that makes sense. And actually, yes, speaking of your study, um, I was curious to learn a bit more about it, so a bit more about the methodology you used. You know, How did you guys find millionaires? How did you identify them? And then... Were they speaking kind of from their own knowledge? Were you checking their backgrounds? You know, how did, how did this all sort of come to fruition? 
Right. Well, we're all familiar with uh, the book Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. uh, this book by Thomas Stanley, 25 years ago, to me was a foundational book where, you know, me as a, a kid from rural Kentucky, I didn't know anything about millionaires. I thought if that was someone, you know, you, you had to have inherited it or you are a pro athlete or a musician or something. So uh, first of all, that's kind of where we started. But in having the conversation, I wanted to go big. And I meant I really wanted to see what does the landscape for millionaires look like in today's world. So it was so big, we had to commission a study with a research firm uh, to really help us reach out, identify, verify, validate all the information to start to get these uh, millionaires. Uh, we've also re released the research as well, so you can get that at chrishogan360.com to dig into the methodology. But the idea was to talk to real men and women that have done it, not just people with opinions. Throughout your book, Chris, you keep coming back to the importance of mindset. Uh, that with the mm. wrong mindset, you're never going to achieve your financial goals. With the right mindset, you can accomplish even more than you ever thought you could. Why do you attribute so much importance to mindset, and how do you recommend someone who's doubting their abilities to become a believer? How do you get them to flip that switch? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. One of the things that, that all of these millionaires seemed, they felt strongly about, 97% of the millionaires that we talked to said that they were in control of their own destinies. Uh, that meant these were people that were self kind of empowered. They were looking at themselves, not looking to blame someone. And I think that's an interesting thing in our culture nowadays, where it's real easy to look to find someone to blame why you haven't done X, Y, or Z. And so I, to me, mindset is crucial. I mean, you know, you guys, I'm an athlete in my background. Um, and so, you know, understanding the, the, the coaches that I worked with that taught me early on, Zig Ziglar, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, you know, the, the psychology of the mind. And so I think, you know, and there's the, the statement there that whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And so it's really important for us to really dig into and be aware of our beliefs. Um, well, that's one of the things I talk about in the book as well. Do you believe it's possible for you to do certain things? Uh, this is very, very, very vital because if you don't think you can, then I don't think you end up giving the effort like you could because you've already been defeated and you haven't gotten to the starting line. So I think it's important for us psychologically to understand what do we believe? Do we believe it's possible for us to become a millionaire nowadays? Uh, and a lot of people don't believe that they can because they don't know what it is and they don't know how to get there. When you write about the fiscal priorities of these millionaires that you surveyed, you list discipline and consistency really as those yeah. two major factors. Mm -hmm. What are some everyday ways, small steps even, people can put those two factors into practice to help them get the ball rolling to where they're starting to apply discipline and consistency to their finances? Well, I think, you know, looking at discipline, that means that you, you've got to be able to know how to commit to something. Right. Um, and I don't think anybody that's successful ever gets there by accident. Right. I work with a lot of pro athletes and entertainers and guys that win, you know, the, the music awards or they win the Super Bowl. You know, they never get out there and go, we don't know how we won. We just all showed up and they handed us a trophy, right? That didn't happen that way. Uh, the musicians are practicing. They're doing the things. They're putting in the time. Athletes are putting in the time on the practice field to be able to perform. I think in the financial realm, it's the same kind of concept. We just need to understand what it is we need to practice and have discipline on. And I would say those categories fall into budgeting. They fall into understanding debt and attacking debt so you get back more of your income, the importance of saving, and also the importance of investing. 
And so these are the four areas I feel that if we can practice discipline, practice self-control and grow our knowledge, we can improve our performance with our money. So to go back a little bit to mindset, this was just something I was curious about while reading this. Um, Did you encounter people who said, hey, you know, I have a sick kid at home or I have a disability and they're just, it's just not possible for me, right? I have something Mm -hmm. that is just blocking my ability to save money or tamp down on spending or whatever it is. And it's just not going to happen. Oh, absolutely, Susanna. I mean, listen, I've been dealing with people and money for over 20 years. um, And I've bumped into people that have had some real life world situations Mm -hmm. go on. Um, And the thing about it is, is I've seen those people that have had those, those difficulties in life. And these are, these are serious challenges. But I've also met people that had those same kind of similar challenges or worse. But they also made a decision at some point that they weren't going to let that situation be the final determination of where they are. And so it goes back to the whole mental process. Um, you know, I've got I've got a gentleman uh, that was uh, a World War vet uh, that dealt with some serious challenges uh, health-wise, uh, mentally, uh, but he pushed through that. And so I still think, regardless, I think all of us have different start points, mm-hmm. and we also have different setbacks. You know, there's a lot of us walking around that look okay that have walked through some serious stuff, and you've got some emotional challenges or physical or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, What are you deciding that is possible for you? And then what are you working toward? You know, we live in the greatest country on the planet, right? I'm biased. This is where I've lived all my life. America is a beautiful place. We have the ability to be able to decide and work toward working toward something. We don't need anyone's permission. We don't have to get a permission sign permission slip sign like we did back in grade school to go on that field trip. We get to decide. So I think cognitively, our mental thought process and our outlook is absolutely imperative for us achieving anything in our lives. Hmm. That's really interesting. Actually, so, you know, another thing that stuck out to me when I was reading through, and you have great examples in your book of millionaires um, from all different backgrounds, different ages, how they got there, what they attribute their success to. And it made sense to me when I was reading through these that, of course, many of them are middle-aged or older because they've sort of built up this wealth slowly and over time. But do you think millennials or Generation Z will have the same road as, as they go through, you know, higher college costs or, you know, the extinction of pensions, whatever it is? Or are they going to have the same path or will it be different going forward? You know what? I think we will always have a mixed bag in America. I think we will always have people that see and understand and choose. Mm -hmm. And I think we have other people that see and decide not to choose. So I think we'll always be there. But I'm going to tell you something. Listening to the callers that call into the Chris Hogan show, um, where I'm talking to them, I'm talking to millennials. I mean 21, 22, 23-year-old kids that are paying cash for cars. Um, I'm talking to 29, 30-year-olds that have paid off their homes. So I think it really boils down to, are they gaining the information to make the choice? Are we helping them to see the benefit? I, I think the world looks like a better place when we have people that aren't strangled by credit card debt and student loan debt, and they're working jobs they care about and love, which was amazing. 96% of the millionaires that I talked to, uh, they, they, they enjoyed their career. They enjoyed what they did for a living, which I think is a big deal in talking about someone working in a long-term job being focused. 64% of them said they loved their jobs. 
So I think for young people, it's a matter of understanding what are the pitfalls to avoid and what are the things to definitely do to set yourself up for success later. Uh, but I, I hope if I do my job well, uh, that I am helping people to understand and be able to make good choices for themselves and their family. That's, you know, I think Generation Z and millennials have more information, right, than anybody has before. So yes. maybe that's a benefit. Yes. Um, and no, Tom, you're right. Yeah. They do. They, I mean, listen, Susanna, you're a whole lot younger than me. Um, I grew up in the day and age of encyclopedias. Okay. When I'd go to Mama Hogan's house, she'd have this <laughs> row of books and I'd have to get it out and thumb through. You know, nowadays you're right. I mean, we have computers in our hands that we mm -hmm. walk around with each and every day. So it's not necessarily about ac access to information. I think it's the application of mm -hmm. information in our lives that helps us make a difference. You know, information without application is just knowledge. Knowledge, right? But information that gets applied has an opportunity to become wisdom. And we learn from the things we do well, but we can also learn from others' mistakes. 89% um, of these millionaires said they learned about money from their parents. So I think it's vital for us as parents to be able to have these conversations with younger people so they understand how money works. I've got three sons. They're 14, 13, and 11. Uh, these boys eat up everything, right? So they're, they're busy. They're always running around and moving. But at age five, we taught them the value of money, meaning that you have an envelope to give, you have an envelope to save, and you have an envelope to, uh, to be able to spend. And see, teaching them those three categories at five, six, seven, eight years old, what I'm helping them to understand is that money doesn't come from mom and dad. Money comes from work. And so we put them on commission, right? They do their chores. Like you all might have called that allowance. At the Hogan House, we call it commission. You do your job, you get paid. You don't do your job, well, you're going to do your job. It's not optional, right? Uh, but you won't get paid. And so that's the reality of the culture that we're in, helping people to understand money comes from work. If you do your work, you earn money. Once you earn money, now let's have a plan for that money and be intentional with it. Sure. So relating to that a little bit, a common theme I got from the book was that Millionaires you surveyed were rarely acting like they were millionaires, even after they had reached their peak wealth. They kept the same habits, the same budgeting approaches, the same thriftiness. And I think that's a big challenge for a lot of people. I, I will sp uh, call out millennials specifically being one of them. Every raise looks like an opportunity to increase your lifestyle accordingly. How does one stop themselves? How does one, not, we're not going to name any names, how does one stop themselves from not going on, on that shopping spree with every bonus or pay raise and instead use that for their end goal. Antonio, I appreciate how you went anonymous there in that question. That was good. Uh, I, I think it's important for us internally to make decisions. I'm going to tell you all something. You know, I sit here now and I help people deal with money uh, and go down the right path. I'm able to do that because I went down the wrong path. I was one of those people that thought when I make more, I'll get more serious. Okay, this was something I actively said. Okay, when I get to this dollar amount, that's when I'll take my money a little bit more serious. The problem is, is that what I figured out is this. If you don't have a plan for your money, someone else does, right? The mall has a plan for your money. The restaurants have a plan for your money. So I think here's the deal. Um, I think it's important for us to be able to enjoy the day. Uh, but that whole phrase, and you all know this phrase better than I, I'm too old, but the whole YOLO thing, right? You only live once. I had to look that up. I thought they were talking about the candies. Uh, but you only live once. That's not the deal. You can have fun and enjoy things, but let's do it intentionally with cash. 
You know, 94% of these millionaires that I talk to stuck to the budgets that they set for themselves month in and month out. So this, the, the budget didn't become this thing that they just did. It became a part of their lives. It's a trail. This is how you keep connected to your money. 92% of these millionaires have a long-term view of money. So their thinking is different. They're looking at things different and they're still enjoying stuff, but they're paying cash. One of the lessons you wrote about fairly early on in the book uh, of things to avoid, you mentioned avoiding business partnerships because they can often fall apart and get messy really quickly. But then later on, you discuss that budgeting requires teamwork, specifically when looking at a marriage and how spouses need to work with each other and communicate. Mm -hmm. I was really fascinated. Can you talk about the relationship between these two dynamics and how a marriage is a, a business partnership in a sense? I'm not saying they're the same thing. But what aspects of a business partnership do you really need to pay attention to when working through the financial aspects of marriage? Yeah. Well, the, the reality is, is when, when you get married, the, the deal is it's much easier to get to your goals working in unison. Right. And I, I liken it, not that I'm a nautical expert, but if you're in a rowboat, right, and we're both rowing in the same direction at the same speed, you can cover more ground. But if you're in the rowboat and one is rowing one direction and the other is rowing the other, you're actually offsetting progress. You're, you're stalemating. And so there's no movement. So I think it's really important for husbands and wives to communicate about money. Like talking about it. We all come from families with our own backgrounds. Some families talk more about money than others. Others don't talk about it at all. And so coming together and really having this understanding of, hey, how are we going to approach our lives? How are we approaching things financially? But typically, it's so funny how we end up being married to somebody that's wired a little bit different than us. Um, I think that's there's a whole comedy skit I could do on that. Uh, but the reality is, is you typically have one that's more of a spender and one that's more of a saver. And so how are we working together? And I think the two can complement each other well. I never think it's healthy just to save all your money and not enjoy it, nor do I think it's healthy to spend all your money and not plan for things. So that common ground and coming together and communicating is important. And here's another reason. Years ago when I was doing financial coaching, I'll never forget there was a lady, she was around 42 years old, sitting in my, in my waiting room holding a, a brown box. And she comes in and we sit down and we talk. And the reality was this. Her husband was injured in a car accident. He was in intensive care and was probably going to be there for three to four months. Well, he was the person that always handled the money. She never worried about it. They'd been married for 15 years. He always handled it. So I think it's important for husbands and wives to work together to also cross train for the sake of the family, that if something does happen, both of you have the skills, both of you have the philosophy and the focus and the process of how we're going to take care of the family. So this communication allows for you all to be able to align together and do things in unison. That's so interesting. I've actually, I've written a story about that before. There are data and surveys that show that, um, being in a long-term relationship can hurt your financial health if you just let your spouse take care of all the finances. So I think that's really interesting. Um, well, and, and I want to bring up another thing, too, because this is what I'm hearing from millennials out there. Mm -hmm. They're like, Chris, listen, when we get married, I'm going to have my bank account and she'll have hers. Right. And I'm like, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, that's that's not teamwork. Uh, that's division. Don't do that. What you want to do is come together and be able to communicate. And oftentimes we tend to take the path of least resistance, meaning it's easier to not talk about it than it is to communicate about it and get aligned. I think you're better off for, for in your financial uh, kind of uh, 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 life working together. 
going through that, flexing those muscles. Most couples only talk about money when there's a problem, right? Well, this is a perfect storm. M women typically look at money and they th think of security. Men typically look at money and they see the value of themselves. So if he's not valuing himself because there's not enough money and she doesn't feel secure because there's not enough money, this is a combustible situation. So talking about money in good times and bad allows communication to flow, but you can also support each other. When one is feeling a little bit more scared, the other can have some confidence. And you can work together, Antonio, as a team instead of a unified group of individuals. There's nothing more romantic than going to the bank and opening up a joint account, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> um, so to go back a bit to, to the millionaires and actually the family dynamic among them, you know, I thought it was really interesting that um, only 21% had any inheritance at all. So this wasn't money coming from a parent or, or somebody else in their family. But I was mm. also curious if you saw people who maybe got help in other ways from their family. So say their parents helped them with a down payment on a house or, you know, kind of how that wealth mm -hmm. traveled from generation to generation, even if it wasn't through just, uh, you know, somebody passes away and you get a check right. for six figures. Right. Well, I think it's important that you call that out. You know, we said 21%, you know, only 21% of millionaires have received an inheritance. But I went back through and I was adding it up. That means 79% didn't receive anything. Okay, at all. Now, the inheritance side of things, this is something that we looked at that was $10,000 or more. Uh, but you bring up the point of did they receive help with a down payment or help with a wedding? Oh, I'm sure, you know, looking at that. But I think that was attributed to more when we started to look at the giving component of the study. 70% um, of these millionaires set aside money intentionally each month to be able to give. Uh, so that, that mindset, that tells me more about the heart of who they are, that they do want to be able to help people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with helping others. Um, I know personally, the best thing you could ever do with money is give it away. Being able to help people anonymously, I love being able to do things like that. So I think it's the mindset and how you view it. Uh, to me, money's a tool, right? Money doesn't cure everything. Um, you know, you can make $50,000 and be a very mean person. Uh, you can make $150,000 and I think you'll only be a meaner person, right? It's not going to make you who you are, but a kind person that's making 50,000 a year, that's setting aside money to give and help people when they're making 150 and they get themselves out of debt, I can assure you their percentage of giving is going to go up because that's who they are. Chris, when you talk about getting help, giving and getting help, let's talk about getting professional help. According to a study reference, the study that you uh, reference in your book, 68% of millionaires used a financial planner to achieve their net worth. When should someone consider professional help over just basic wise financial practices like spending less, budgeting, and investing in a 401k? I mean, the 25-year-old may say they'll wait until a major purchase is on the horizon or after a major life event like marriage. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend speaking with a financial planner even sooner? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, looking at this, uh, as you said, 68% of these millionaires use an investment professional to help them along the way. Um, and I think that's that's the case, and that's a smart thing to do, right? If you need help, you want to talk to someone that has that knowledge. And so I think a young person reaching out and having a conversation, as they set up their 401k, as soon as they get that first real job and they're eligible after nine months or a year, those are the typical waiting periods before you can enroll. But before you do that, yes, 
wants to definitely sit down, have someone review that, have them talk through. The stuff that you mentioned, though, the skills, the budgeting, uh, the attacking debt, the savings, I think those are things that we can do on our own. But I would say also, if you need help or guidance in that to find that information, whether it's through a book that you can get for free at a library or buying a book online or listening to a podcast or watching some YouTube videos, whatever it is, I think the importance is growing our knowledge, but not being too prideful to ask for help. This pride thing is real. Um, and I think too often times we want to just muscle through it and, and or you all heard this phrase, fake it until you make it. <laughs> right. This, this is a phrase that that phrase drives me crazy. Right. Because I think in, in financial areas, if you're trying to fake it until you make it, the problem is, is you won't make it uh, because you may be going down the wrong path or missing some options. Um, I worked with a gentleman that had worked at a I won't say the company, but had worked there for 22 years. Okay, the way that he was invested, as I looked at his 401k, he was essentially invested like he had put money in a certificate of deposit, or as I call them, certificates of depreciation because they don't keep up with inflation. Right. Uh, but he had invested so mildly and, 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 and with so much fear that I added it up and I never told him this, but I ran the numbers on it. He had missed out on almost $560,000 in interest and in growth had he just been a, just, just a little bit more balanced and diversified in how he did it. So in that scenario, you know, you've got someone that missed out on money because they didn't get proper guidance. So I advise everybody, sit down with your investment professional once a quarter or at least twice a year. Take your 401k or 403bn, have them look at it and figure out, are there some small tweaks that can be made that could make big gains for you financially later? Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. Since we had such a great conversation with Chris Hogan, we've decided to cut the interview into two parts. You've just finished part one, and part two will air next week, picking up right where we left off on building wealth. The easiest way to not miss part two is by subscribing to Wealth of Knowledge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have personal finance questions related to debt, saving money, loans, or credit you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on the next personal finance episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on personal finance information, check out money.usnews.com slash personal finance, where we have all sorts of advice on spending, budgeting, banking, taxes, and much more. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.